Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew once again. Matthew's Gospel, we are in chapter 12 today. We'll be looking at verses 22 to 32. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 32. You know, our day is one dominated by cultural narratives. In particular, you know the one, probably the one that's the most prevalent very well. You hear it in sitcoms, you hear it in music, you are taught it, college students in universities, around our schools, in our nation, is touted and taunted, promoted at award shows, social media, and sadly enough, even from some pulpits across our nation. It's the narrative that the pinnacle of personal achievement is to express yourself. That it's about me. It's what Carl Truman in his book, Strange New World, has deemed and called expressive individualism. That the moment that you arrive is that, that moment that you have figured out and come to a place where you're so confident and sure in yourself that you express yourself no matter what that may look like. So the narrative goes, as it would, that if you're just true to yourself, your your feelings and your desires, if you're faithful to live by that mantra that we know all too well and some say, you do you, If we're just faithful to live by that, then you will be applauded. You will be celebrated. And if you're aware of this narrative, you will see it pushed in every arena of our day. Every time you turn around, that narrative is going to be pushed and promoted and driven to you. To express yourself. It's all about you. You do you. And it is applauded. It doesn't matter what it means for you to do you. The morality of such really is out the window. It's just if you've expressed yourself, then you're applauded. And what we see is good being called evil. And what is evil being called good in our day. Our text today leads us to a similar situation in the ministry of Christ. A moment where we see the Pharisees driving their narrative, pushing their narrative, promoting their narrative that is contrary to who Christ is. The narrative that this is not the Son of God, but He is doing the work of the devil. The narrative in which they call what is good and holy and right. They're calling it evil. Let's read our text this morning Matthew 12, 22 to 32, and see how this narrative rises to the surface once again. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out therefore they will be your judges but if it is by the spirit of god that i cast them out then the kingdom of god has come upon you or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house whoever is not with me is against me And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit 
will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, we understand reading contextually that what we come upon today is tied to what is preceded. So just by way of reminder, we go back to Matthew 11, the great imitation of Christ, right? We've talked about it off and on for the last few weeks that his imitation of come to me, all who are heavy laden, all who are laboring, and I will give you rest. Then out of that, we go into Matthew 12, 1 to 14, where we see Jesus demonstrating that his burden is indeed light. His yoke is indeed easy, in particular in the way he handles and carries out ministry on the Sabbath. And in particular importance of our text this morning, we come then to our text from last week, verses 15 to 21. And in verses 15 to 21, we see Matthew showing by quoting Isaiah 42, 1-4, that Jesus was the chosen servant of God. He was no mere man. He was the chosen servant of God, one that God had sent, the Messiah, the long-awaited, anointed one. And so here in our passage today, coming out of that, we have the Pharisees accusing Jesus, the servant, the chosen servant of God, accusing him of doing the work of Satan. And so they've, they've heard Jesus' invitation. They've, they've heard even his rebuke. If you back up further into chapter 11, they've heard his rebuke and his, his call to repent. And they've heard the invitation. They've seen demonstrations of his power. They've seen who he is. They were told reminded that he is the chosen servant of the Lord. And now, when they see him healing a demon-oppressed man, their accusation, their narrative, is that this is the work of Satan. That he does this by Beelzebul. So when he comes on the scene, verse 22, we read here that a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. This is what Jesus had been doing, right? And we see here that there was a spiritual cause to the fact that he was blind and mute. This isn't always the case in Scripture. We've talked about that in past weeks, but sometimes it is. The biblical writers knew the difference. They understood when something was purely a physical ailment. They understood when there was something that had a spiritual foundation, a spiritual cause to that ailment. And in this particular instance, there was a spiritual background, a spiritual cause to what was going on. And so he was demon-oppressed. Jesus healed him. The man spoke and saw. And it prompts the people to ask a question. It prompts them to be amazed. They look and they behold and they're amazed. And they look and they ask a question. It's an important question. What is their question? They say, can this be the son of David? Can, Can this be him? We were just told he's the chosen servant of God. Can this be the son of David? It's only the second time that this title has been used of Christ in Matthew. The other time was in chapter 9, verse 27. And so now it's used again, and they're asking, could this be him? Could this be the one of Davidic lineage? Is this the one who has kingly lineage, the one who is anointed, who has come, whose kingdom, kingdom will be established, and it will have no end? Could this truly be The Messiah is what they're asking. Is this him? They're amazed. And now this would certainly stir up the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees hear this, and they they certainly would get a little riled up, a little agitated. That This this man from Nazareth, Nazareth, this Nazarene, would come and, and be stirring things up as God's chosen servant. But we see that. We see in verse 18 there, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. And now we read the people having heard that and listening and looking and going, is this him? Is this the son of David? Matthew is intentionally connecting these events to help us see that Isaiah prophesied of him, it is Jesus and the people are seeing it as well. They're seeing amazing works of the Lord. And they're looking and they're stepping back and going, this is amazing. Is he the son of David? Is he the one? But, verse 24, but what do the Pharisees do? 
They saw the same thing. They heard the same words. And what did they do? It says, but when the Pharisees saw it, when they heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. The Beelzebul is just in reference to the prince of demons, to Satan. The name for Satan here. And it's, it's the Pharisees intentionally pushing this narrative, this idea that Jesus is not divine. He is not the Son of God. He's not working through the Spirit, by the Spirit of God. He is working by the power of Satan himself. It's the narrative that they had begun to push to protect their position. It was the verbal slandering of the Pharisees and persecution of Christ. We saw it in Matthew 9.34 where the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. In Matthew 10.25, Jesus said that the Pharisees had called him this. Remember, he warns us. And he said, if they'll call me Beelzebul, then what do you think they're going to say about you? Do you think they won't malign you as well? We see it again, Matthew 11.18. John the Baptist was accused of having a demon. In Mark 3.22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He cast out demons. In John 8.48, the Jews accused Jesus of having a demon. And in John 10.20, many of them said he has a demon. He is insane. Why listen to him? The narrative is pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. It's promoted, it's, it's set forth as saying, this is who he is. If we say it enough, if we parrot it enough, you'll buy into it and you'll believe it. We're just going to keep saying it, keep saying it, no matter what Christ does, no matter what mighty works he does, no matter how he lives the sinless and righteous life, we're just going to keep on and on and on and on repeating it so that hopefully you'll believe it and we can maintain our position, right? So they keep on and on and on. So how does Jesus respond then? Look at verses 25 to 29. How does he respond? Well, first, he responds by stating the truth. The truth is in verse 25. Verse 25, he says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. The the truth that he says is he says, A kingdom divided against itself will fall. So that's what you need to know. This is my response. If you're saying that I'm ministering and I'm doing this by the power of the prince of demons, then you need to understand I'm casting out demons, but yet I'm doing it by his power, really? You need to understand the truth is that a kingdom divided against itself will fall. Jesus understood that division always destroys. It never unites. It never strengthens. It always separates. It always destroys. And he elaborates on that truth by giving three illustrations or three examples, three points here. You see it in verse 26, verse 27, and verse 29. The first one in verse 26, he essentially asks, if Satan is working to cast out his own demons, will his kingdom not be divided and fall? In in verse 26, that's the question. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? It doesn't even make sense. And then in verse 27, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom are your sons casting them out? Let's go ahead and make this real personal, guys. We, we don't have that recorded in Scripture, but historical writings, Josephus references the, the fact that Pharisees in that day were taking part in casting out demons. And so Jesus says, listen, if, if my casting out of demons is a work of Satan, then what about your other Pharisees? Let's talk about them for a minute. What are they doing? You don't accuse me? Let's talk. Verse 29 is his third point. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder the house. He's simply pointing out, asking, how could one cast out demons without first binding the one who would be authoritative over them, the prince of demons? And so he makes three points there. He says, listen, if you're going to keep on pushing this narrative, you're going to keep on presenting this, if you're going to keep on intentionally denying that I am the chosen servant of the Lord, that I am working by the Spirit being upon me, it says in verse 18 that God says, I will put my Spirit upon him. If you're going to intentionally seek to deny that, to malign that, to cast it aside, to cover it up, then let's talk. 
Let's talk about the reality. Let's dig past the surface level stuff and let's look at how ludicrous that accusation really is. Listen, we need to learn something from that. We need to learn something. When there are narratives that are constantly pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed, we need to peel back the layer and look, is it really whole water? Does it really make sense? Is it really true? We need to learn to analyze the godless narratives of our day. We need to look beyond the surface and look at the faulty logic, the untruths, the ungodliness. We need to be discerning, thinking Christians. Don't just take something at face value and go, oh, I hear it everywhere. I hear it here, I hear it there, I hear it there. It must be true. Don't buy the lies of those opposed to the Lord. Now, Jesus makes two bold assertions now. Coming out of that, he makes two bold assertions. The first one is in verse 28. He says, But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he's, he's pointed to it and he says, Listen, a kingdom divided against itself will not stand. It will fall. And here's three points to make that really clear to you. Here's how I'm going to drive that home. Now, if that's the case, and we would look and go, okay, you're right, you got us. Then he says, if it is then by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then you better wake up. Because that means the kingdom of God has come upon you. Not will come, not might come, not, might not, it's not, he's not saying sometime in the future. He says it has come. It is presently here. It is upon you. If he's casting out demons, he says it is here. The kingdom that the Pharisees had looked for and longed for and been waiting for, Jesus says you need to realize what's actually happened. It's here, and you've missed it. You're denying it. It is right here in front of you. He counters their narrative with the truth that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the truth that John began preaching when he comes on the scene, right? He's preaching repentance and declaring the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Matthew 3, 2. When Jesus begins his public ministry in Matthew four seventeen, what does he say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see it again in Matthew 10, 7. The kingdom of heaven is at hand is the message that Christ comes to declare and to preach that the kingdom of heaven is here. God's rule had begun in the person and the work of the incarnate Son of God. When Jesus comes, the kingdom is here. It's the kingdom that has no geographic boundaries. It's the kingdom with no ethnic roots, not limited to time and space. It's the kingdom of God in which Christ rules as King of kings and Lord of lords in the lives and the hearts of men. And Christ says, it is right here, right in front of you. You can deny it all you want, but it is here. It's here. So that's a bold assertion for him to say in the face of the Pharisees. The second thing he says is in verse 30. So first he says, if I'm not casting out demons, by Beelzebul, then you need to realize the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here upon earth in my person. It is here. Okay? It has come upon you. The second bold assertion in verse 30 is he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus draws a very clear line in the sand here. He's essentially stating there is no room for neutrality. You're either with Christ or you're against Christ. There's no middle ground. You're either under the dominion of the kingdom of God or you're under the dominion of the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is described as the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Both in John 12.31 and John 14, 30, Satan is described as the ruler of this world. And Jesus says, you're either with me or you're against me. 
You're either of the kingdom of heaven or you're under the dominion of the ruler of this world. Now, again, we should be able to take a principle from here and be reminded that there's no neutrality when it comes to Christ. You're either with Christ or you are against Christ. There's no middle ground to fall in where it's like, well, I can, I can kind of appreciate the teachings of Jesus and I can appreciate church and morality and then I'll just be okay. That's not possible. You're either with Christ or you're not. You're either an adopted son of the King of Kings who's been granted the blessed privilege to bow in his presence and say, Father, my Father who's in heaven, hallowed is your name. Or, or, you're a child of wrath. Being manipulated by the ruler of this world with your eyes blinded by him. This is what John wrote about. When John writes his letter, 1 John, and he gets to the end and he's talking about why he wrote the letter. It's what he says. He, he essentially says this, that, that there is a line in the sand. You either have Christ or you don't have Christ. You have life or you don't have life. He says in 5, 11 to 13, he says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You trusted Christ. If you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ, then you have eternal life. If you have not, you do not. There is no middle ground. You're either with God or you're against God. You're either saved or you're not saved. You're a Christian or you're not a Christian. There is no middle ground. The good news is you don't have to wonder. The Christian life is not a life of uncertainty and vain hope. Christian life is one of surety, confidence in Christ. Because our salvation is bound up in Christ. Because he has said, if you repent and believe, you will be saved. Right? It's a life of assurance and confidence in him. Now, verse 31 and 32, Jesus made these bold assertions. He's responded to their narrative. He stated the truth. And now he comes to these two verses of conclusion. These aren't easy verses to hear, even interpret. They, they've actually they've been misapplied over many, many years. I would say in general, just as we approach these last two verses, verse 31 and 32, that there should be a general takeaway just that we would glance at and see right away as of one of warning. That we look at these verses, there will be a time when forgiveness is off the table. It will come. Yes, God is the forgiving, merciful God, but He is also just. Yes, God is patient, but He's also warned us that there will be a day of judgment. That day will come. And so, right from the get-go, we hear these verses. We hear Jesus say, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus is making very clear. This is a, a weighty thing he's saying. It's either in this age or the age to come. The warning is this, that, that I want you to hear this morning. If you continue rejecting Jesus, denying the divine work of God through him as testified of in the Gospels. If you continue denying that, you will not have a plea for mercy and forgiveness when you stand before the throne of God at the end. You need to know that. 
You need to know that. That day will come. That's the warning, a general warning. The good news is that forgiveness is available through Christ. It's available today through Christ. So what's the meaning of these verses? Then? We have often termed these or called this verse, particularly verse 32, the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. We start in 31, and, and we need to be careful to really look at the text and what it says. He says, therefore, right? Therefore connects what Jesus is about to say with what has preceded. And it's critical that we keep that in mind. When we look at these two verses. We have to keep in mind the fact that these verses are connected to what has come before. They're not just two verses that somebody's pulled out of thin air and going, poop, here they are. Now let's just don't worry about the context. You need to make sure you're always reading Scripture in context. Don't just pull verses out and go, okay, what do they mean? And not think about what's been going on. We know what's been going on. We know that in verse 18, Matthew has pointed out that it was spoken of Isaiah, or in Isaiah, that God would send his chosen servant, his beloved, whom he is well pleased. And what does he say? I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This is Christ. This is Jesus, right? He is the son of David. He is the son of God who has come. He's the son of man. And so we look and we read that and we understand the context. That in the context, what is happening is Matthew, through Isaiah and through the ministry of Christ, is presenting and saying, this is who Jesus is. He is the chosen servant of God. And then we get down to verse 22, all the way down to verse 30, and what's happening? Jesus is carrying out his ministry. And the people look and they're amazed and they're starting to understand and behold who Jesus is. This is not just some carpenter boy. It's the son of David. Huh. Look at it. It's the son of David. Look what he's doing. But the Pharisees go, no, 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 no. <laughs> he's, not, he's not the son of David. He's only doing that by the power of Satan. So what's going on contextually? The Pharisees are looking at the Son of Man, Jesus, the chosen servant of God, whose Scripture said the Spirit of God would be upon, and saying He is not doing anything by the Spirit of God. He's doing it by the Spirit of Satan. They're giving credit to Satan, not to God. They're attributing the work of God to the work of the devil. They're calling what is good, evil. They're looking and saying, that's not the chosen servant of God. He's doing the work of Satan. You see there in verse 31, we have this statement, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Bl blasphemy is words of slander. They're firm, hard, cruel words of slander against someone or something just in general is defined. It says, I, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, verse 31 where he says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, we, we see that. In Matthew 16, 13 to 14, I think is a pretty good example of that where the people misunderstood who Jesus was. You remember Jesus asked the disciples, he says, who, who do people say that I am? Do you remember him, this conversation? This is where Peter confesses Christ. He makes that great confession about who Christ is, and Christ says, upon this rock, I will build my church, right? And he says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The people were mistaken. They were confused. They, they were trying to figure this out. It's, it's in part why Jesus had what we talked about a little bit last week and we see off and on through the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the messianic secret, right? Where Jesus says, don't, don't, don't tell everybody about me right now. Just stay quiet. Go about your business. You're healed. You're forgiven. It's because he knows that people misunderstand. They don't perceive accurately and rightly who he is. Every 
blasphemy, every sin against the Son of Man, against people, or forgive, will be forgiven people. The, the reality is, is we may have a false understanding of who Jesus is or whether he's divine. We may even deny him. Some of you in here may be in a point where you're like, no, I just, I, I don't believe, I'm not going to follow him. The rest of us in here at some point were saying that, right? Those of us who are saved, we were rejecting Jesus. However, if, if we see Jesus for who he is, and we understand and perceive that he is the divine son of God, that he carried out a ministry upon this earth, with the Spirit upon Him. And seeing that, we attribute that to Satan. We're in trouble. If we look and say He is the Son of God, He is God in the flesh, and what He does and what He said and what He taught and calls us to, that's evil. That's wrong. That's a work of Bilzebul. And friends, you are in a very, very dangerous spot. You see here that the, the Pharisees don't object to or attack what Jesus did. They're attacking the authority by which He did it. They're saying the Spirit is not upon Him. He's operating by Beelzebul. He's operating by Satan. They were calling good evil. I was talking with someone this weekend and had the conversation about this and then, oddly enough, came across it again in a commentary about five minutes later, just doing some final study and, and reading. and Just the concern, have I committed this sin? Have I spoken against so blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in such a way that I can't be forgiven? And what was told to this individual is my mother-in-law. She's here and we were having this conversation. I have to say something good about my mother-in-law you know, to make up for all the bad things. And, um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's a joke. It's a joke. If you're worried the advice she was given as a young adult if you're worried about that you probably have nothing to worry about if it's a concern the study in it came across the same exact wisdom from james montgomery boyce so if you're worried about not doing this it's probably a pretty good sign that you're not having but if you're intentionally suppressing the truth, if you're intentionally spurning the good, holy work of God, the Son of God in Christ, if you're intentionally doing that, rejecting it and attributing it to what is evil, then you are in a very, very dangerous spot. Isaiah had said the Spirit would be upon him. We see that in verse 18, Isaiah 42, 1. So to reject him as the Messiah is to reject the very work of God. To object the fact that he was the Son of God. So the contextually, contextually, if you look and we read this in context of what's going on in verses 15 all the way down to verse 32, we would understand that the unforgivable sin is willfully and intentionally attributing the work and person of Christ to be the work of Satan, to be evil, to call what is good evil. It is intentionally turning from and suppressing God's work in and through Christ. It's similar to what, what the author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 10. In, in Hebrews 10, we, we read this. You can just listen. This is Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. You can read it later. The author of Hebrews says this, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now listen, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled 
underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Be warned. Be warned today. If you continually reject Jesus, if you continually deny the divine work of God through him as testified of in the Gospels, then when you stand before the throne of God, you have no plea of mercy and forgiveness. But remember, forgiveness is available through Christ today. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You're either with him or you're against him. There is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. So I think there's three questions in response to this passage that we should ask. Three questions. The first question is this. Is how will I respond when slander comes upon me for the sake of Christ? How will I respond? That's what's happening to our Lord is slander is coming upon him. How will I respond when slander comes upon me for the sake of Christ? Pastor J.C. Ryle said when the Christian's argument cannot be answered and the Christian's works cannot be denied. The last resource of the wicked is to blacken the Christian's character. There, there will come a day, if not already, in which someone attempts to verbally smear you and your character before men. It, it will happen. Maybe your, your life may make them uncomfortable. Your integrity may embarrass them. The gospel may offend them. When that moment comes, just like the Pharisees here in Matthew 12, they will attempt to attack you, malign you, slander you. They didn't, again, they didn't attack Jesus for what he did. They were just trying to push a false narrative and slander and malign him. In Matthew 10, 24 to 25, Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house visible, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus knew what was going on. He knew the narrative that was being pushed. He knew what the Pharisees were trying to promote. He knew their maligning. He knew their slandering. He said, listen, it's going to come to you too. Do you really think that it's not going to come to you? Do you think you're not going to be maligned? You're not going to be spoken evil of? So what are you going to do? The words of Peter are instructive here. Jot these down in your notes. 1 Peter 3, 13 to 16. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, Peter says, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that... When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. How will you respond? How will I respond? How do I respond when that happens? Matthew 5, 30, 43 to 44 we read, but... You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How will we respond when slander comes upon us for the sake of Christ? The second question, second question is this, is how is faithful gospel ministry called evil rather than good today? How, how are the good things of God called evil today. We need to be aware of this. Just like in, in Christ's day, you had to be a, aware of the narrative that was pushed that he's just doing the work of Beelzebul. He's just, it's just by the prince of, of Satan, prince of devil, 
prince of demons. We had to be aware of that. What, what narratives are going on? Where is good called evil today? It's a reminder that there are good things of the Lord that are opposed to Him in our day, just, or that, are, that people oppose in our day just like in His day. And we can't be fooled by those narratives. We can't be fooled by those things. So what are they? What are some good things of the Lord that are currently called evil in our day? What narratives should we be aware of? Well, here, here's one. If you affirm absolute truth, if you stand and say truth is truth, there is truth that is true for all people in all times and all places. It's truth. It's not relative. It's pure. It's absolute. Well, in contrast to that good teaching is the ungodly narrative that standing for absolute moral truth is oppressive because truth is relative. What's good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me. And if you try to oppress me with your truth, I'm not going to take it. You're trying to press your truth on everybody, but truth is relative. That's an ungodly narrative. Here's a second one. The good is affirming God's good design in creating us as male or female. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we have been created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. Right? If you stand for that, you will be opposed in our day. And what is good is called evil. Because the ungodly narrative of our day is that gender is only assigned at birth and may be changed according to a person's feelings later in life. There's a big difference. God's good design called evil, if you promote that. A third thing that is good that is called evil, good is affirming God's good design for marriage between one man and one woman. Genesis 2.24, marriage between one man and one woman. The ungodly narrative of our day is that marriage is a, just a social construct that should be celebrated in any form and between any people who want to be married. And you could even add, in our day, any number of people that want to be married. That's the ungodly narrative that's being pushed. And if you hold to marriage being between one man and one woman in a covenant relationship, it's called evil, oppressive, old-fashioned. Here's another one. The good is affirming life beginning at conception and holding to the truth that a baby in the womb is a baby, a person. That's true, that's good, that's right. The ungodly narrative that you need to be aware of is that what's in the womb is just a fetus that doesn't become a person until others around you, and you pick who that might be, say it's a person. We define personhood. That's the ungodly narrative. If you hold to the truth that life begins at conception, that God created life, and good will be called evil. The fifth one, the gospel. If you hold to the gospel message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to God except through Christ, then you will be met with the ungodly narrative that God is not real, religion is oppressive, and your exclusivity is narrow-minded, intolerant, and unloving. What's good is called evil. Time and time and time again. One last one. What is good, what is right, what is true is that we were created for God's glory, to exalt God above all others, to love others. And the ungodly narrative is what? Express yourself. 
It's all about you. It's all about you. You do you, and everyone else can figure out everything for themselves. What's good is called evil in our day. We need to be thinking Christians. We need to be discerning Christians that know the difference. So that leads to the third question, how do we discern who is with God and who is against? What is with God? What is against? How do we discern? How do we know the difference? There are many voices coming at us every day. They're claiming authority to speak into your lives. They're wanting your allegiance. They're vying for your minds. Listen, young people, you need to realize that. You need to realize that. That there are so many voices coming at you and you can't let your guard down. There are voices coming at you every day that claim to be authoritative. They claim to know what is right. They want to speak into your life. They want your allegiance primarily. They want your checkbook. Say what they want. But they want your allegiance. They're vying for your minds. There's a battle for the mind. And you need to be aware of that. So how do you know? How do you discern? How do you know the difference between right and wrong, what's true, what's good, what's honorable, what's praiseworthy? How do you know the difference between that and between what is ungodly, what's false, what's sinful? How do you know the difference? Here's four ways, four questions to ask. One, ask, one, do they direct glory to God? Are they casting your gaze to Him? Or are they bringing attention and glory to themselves, to their platform, to their banner that they're waving, whatever that might be? Where are they directing glory? Second, do they submit to Scripture in its rightful, true context? Is, is Scripture authoritative? Is it the rule? Is it the absolute? It's the Word of God. The inspired, authoritative, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. So if that's the case, then it stands above all teaching of man. All philosophies, all worldviews are in subjection to Scripture. They don't exist on the same plane. They're not competing. We don't filter Scripture through anything. Scripture is authoritative. And so someone's not submitting to the truth of Scripture. Then don't trust them. Don't trust them. Do they hold to the biblical gospel? Do they hold to the biblical gospel? Or are they presenting some false gospel, a twisted gospel? Are they adding to the gospel with some uh, certain works or cultural stances that you have to take? Do you have to have a certain banner that you wave alongside them? Do they hold to the biblical gospel? And then with that, finally, do they confess Jesus Christ as Lord? Do they confess Christ as Lord? Or do they bow to a cultural movement as Lord? Is everything they've done determined by a stance, a political stance, a cultural stance? Or do they bow to Christ and to Christ alone? Now, I, I want to just briefly draw your attention to what wasn't listed in any of that. We don't discern what is right and wrong, what is with God and what is not with God by whether or not somebody performs a great work. We don't determine it by whether someone is a winsome speaker, a really great YouTube influencer, a really trendy dresser. We don't determine it by someone having the right pedigree or the right letters behind their name we don't attribute it to someone if they have a large following if they can lead an emotional worship set or if they're a part of the right denomination those things and other things of man are not what we determine it with we need to be christocentric christ focused god glorifying biblically grounded gospel centered 
We need to exercise our powers of discernment and wisdom based on God's word and know when what is good is called evil. We need to know the ungodly narratives that are pushed. Listen, I I would just encourage you, if you sit this morning and go, yeah, I've, I've bought into some of those. And turn. Reject them. Reject them. Come to Christ. Maybe you're, you're banking your hope in, in some teaching of man. Stop. Reject it. Our hope is in Christ alone. Listen, if, if you're placing your hope in any ideology of man, it will not last. It will fail you. It will disappoint you. You know why? Because another man's going to come with a different ideology. He's going to change it on you in just maybe a year, maybe six months. I don't know. And everything you fought so hard for is all of a sudden different. I mean, just ask those who waved high the flag of liberal feminism where that got them. Everything they fought for decades ago is now ripped under, out from under their feet big time. They don't even have feminism. Gender is gone. But Christ and Christ alone will never fail you. Never fail you. Why? Because He is the Son of God. He is God's chosen servant who was sent to save you and me from our sins. And so we place our hope and our confidence in Him and in Him alone. Forgiveness is available today through Christ. So if you're here and you're an unbeliever, I would beg of you, I'd plead with you to turn your life over to Christ. Confess your sins, repent of those, and trust Jesus Christ as Lord today. Believers, be thinking Christians Be wise. Be wise. Let's pray.